Spirit lifted me up, and he brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that faces east. There at the entrance of the gate were twenty-five men, and I saw among them Jezaniah, son of Azariah, Penaliah, son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. The Lord said to me, Son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in the city. They say, Haven't our houses been recently rebuilt? This city is a pot, and we are the meat in it. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says. This is what you are saying. House of Israel, but I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city, and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown there are beneath the city of the pot, but I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword, the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city, and deliver you into the hands of foreigners, and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a problem for you, nor will you be the beginning. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, for you have not followed my decrees, or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now, as I was prophesying, Hedeliah, the son of Benaiah, died. And I fell face down and cried out in loud words, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant? Okay, so God takes him to this east gate, and he sees those 25 men, you remember the sun worshippers there, and uh, they are devising iniquity and giving evil advice in Jerusalem. They are really acting with no recognition of the Lord, total prideful arrogance and self-confidence, giving false hope to the people, they are saying, is not the time near to build houses. This is variously translated, but I think that's what they're saying. I think they're saying, is it time to build houses? You know, things are going good. We're going to be here for a long time to come. We might as well start building our houses and investing in the future. As if nothing bad was happening, as if there was no threat to the city. They're complacent, they're smug, they think they've got everything under control. And like, you know, like the man in uh, Luke 12, who was building, taking down his barns to build greater, and didn't recognize that night his soul being required of him. They're just like oblivious, even to the political realities of the situation, much less to the judgment of God that was coming upon them. Like, oh, let's rebuild, let's build this, the houses, we need to get everything. You know, they're, they're just uh, uh, very uh, complacent about that. So what they were saying is, this city is the pot, and we're the flesh. Now that might not sound like a very good thing. I, I, it's, uh, I, I tend to want to give my own interpretation to this uh, analogy, but the one they were giving is this. The city is like this iron pot that protects the meat that's in it. And so they're like the choice meat, like the, the, the wonderful, uh, delicious uh, morsels, so to speak, in this pot that God uh, is protecting. Um, I think I think that's the, the concept. Um, the city's the pot, we're the flesh. And uh, uh, I, I, so I think they were seeing this as, as a means of protection 
And the Lord is saying, actually, no. First of all, you've been killing a bunch of people, and the truth is, you're slain whom you've laid in the midst of the city of the flesh, and the city's the pot. Basically, he's saying that the pot is where you're throwing your slaughtered victims. You're like the butchers, and you're, you're casting your victims into this pot, the city. But I'm going to bring you out of it. Well, the fact that God's going to bring them out of it, I think, is an indication that they were seeing the pot as something that protected them. God is saying, I'm not letting you stay in this pot where you can be, quote unquote, protected. I will bring you out of this pot. I'm going to take you and and you're going to be exposed. You're not going to have the protection of this iron pot anymore. Um, so you feared a sword, but I'm going to bring the sword on you. The Lord himself is going to be the butcher. It's going to uh, slaughter them. And I'll bring you out of the midst of the city and deliver you into the hand of strangers and execute judgments against you, verse 9, and you'll fall by the sword. The city won't be a pot for you. You won't be the flesh in it. If they thought they were going to be protected by this pot, God's taking them out of it, and they're going to be chased and slaughtered by their enemies. Um, he says, you've acted like the nations. You're going to be judged like the nations, and you're going to go to those four nations. You're going to be exiled. And then, as Ezekiel is prophesying this, a very, very startling thing happened. Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, just dropped dead. He just died right there. And, uh, if I, let me see, the, the, the name Pelatiah means the Lord causes a remnant to escape. Well, when Mr. Lord causes the remnant to escape, dies, whoa, that's startling, that's frightening. And, and Ezekiel again says, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? I mean, it, it seems like an omen that there's not going to be a remnant. Now, there will be. But it's pretty uh, a touch and go right here. You know, it's like, is he saying nobody? Nobody really? You know, that, that's the danger. That's the fear. That's the trauma that he was under. All right, thoughts and comments on this section. Yes. I think that's correct. I think it's not the same Other questions? Yes, Brad. Yeah, one way or the other, people will recognize the Lord. That's right, Tyler. Well, I think their view is the city was the pot where the meat, and God's saying, it won't be a pot for you, and you won't be meat in, and I'm taking you out, and there won't be a pot to protect you. Right. Jake. Yeah. <laughs> 
So they need to see God's power and not just trust in the city. Yes. Other thoughts? Okay. Jason. Yes, amen. I agree. Yeah, it's we we get complacent and we just fail to recognize the reality. You know, it's like sometimes we just want to be in denial of of the reality. I think. Peterson. I, I think the idea we are the meat is like they were these choice cuts of meat. There's these prime. Uh, you know, special people of God that are in this protective pot of Jerusalem. So I think I think this is flattering to them. You know, they're filet mignon and prime rib and all that that God's protecting in this pot. That was their view. John. Little different analogy, but uses similar uh, images. Yes. Makai. I, I suppose they probably thought that to some level, but I think especially Jerusalem, they're in this special city that nobody can overcome. church is being exactly the same thing. The church is protecting it. I'm in the church. I'm in the right church. Nothing's happened to me. Yeah, exactly. And just, you know, they thought, well, we're in Jerusalem. Nothing can happen. Well, God can take them out of Jerusalem. We think we're in the church. Nothing can happen. Well, you may not be in God's. <laughs> you may be in a local congregation, but does that mean you're one of God's people and he treats you that way? Look. Verse 8, they feared the sword, and so God gave you the sword. Yeah. It's the same thing if you fear God. Okay, they feared the sword, God gave them the sword. If we fear the Lord, we'll receive the Lord. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Well, so there is a hopeful future, even though he uh, uh, the Lord causes a remnant to escape, just uh, croaked. Uh, there is hope for the future, but not how they thought there was hope for the future. You remember that Ezekiel's preaching to the exiles, the, 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 the first two waves of captivity. They thought the hope was getting back to Jerusalem and, and then being joined with the people of Jerusalem, and that was, that was the future. Well, there's a future, but it doesn't go through going back to Jerusalem at this point. So, verses 14 to 25. Kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those who are the of 
have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations. I will, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring them, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings, with the wills beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the spirit lifted them up. Then the vision that I had seen went up on me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. All right, this is a pretty significant passage. What you see is that Ezekiel is, is giving some rather disturbing information to the exiles. In verse 15, he says, Your brothers, you know, they have um, taken your land. Their idea is, the people who are still back in Jerusalem, is that those who've been exiled already, they're kind of under God's judgment. They've been banished away from Jerusalem by the Lord. So their land is kind of free for the taking. And so this is kind of disturbing to find out their fellow countrymen have horned in on their possession, their, their, their inheritance. And they've taken their land because they think it's like, you know, okay. So here are these guys, I mean, Ezekiel's only, what, six years into the captivity? And already the people in Jerusalem are muscling him out of his property? You know, the exiles must be under God's judgment, so, well, somebody's got to take over their property, right? So they're kind of uh, opportunistically uh, uh, profiteering on, on uh, property, that, that the, the land that these people have owned before they went into captivity. Think about how... That would be damaging to morale. What a discouragement to think, you know, already they've taken over. This land was your land. This land is my land was kind of their, uh, you know, way of uh, looking at that. Because they thought, well, these guys, they're gone. God sent them away. God punished them. You know, there's this whole mindset that really I think both those in Jerusalem and those in Babylon thought, they thought the future was with those who were still in Jerusalem. So the ones in captivity were longing to get back to Jerusalem so they could share in the future, and the ones in Jerusalem thought, we're secure, we're in the pot. Well, what this is saying is, verse 16, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, And though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. The point is, they were not as far away from the Lord as the people of Jerusalem have implied. 
You can have a relationship with God and you can be cared for and protected by God away from the temple, away from Jerusalem. The truth is, we just saw God left the temple. God is actually with the exiles. That's the future. The remnant comes through the exiles. It didn't come through the people who are still in Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah was preaching a very similar message to the people in Jerusalem. Jeremiah 24, for example, the baskets of figs and so forth. That teaches that same lesson. Both sides are getting the message from God, whether they believed it or not, that God was not bound to Jerusalem. God was portable. God was a sanctuary to the exiles in Babylon, and he left his city of Jerusalem. And so God is going to bring them back. In verse 17, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you've been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. So what God's saying is, God is going to bring them back. God's going to take these people, the the, the fugitive, the refugees, who, who have nothing. And they're the ones God's going to bring back and make something out of his people again. Do you remember the statement... In Hosea 2, God gives the valley of Achor as a door of hope. If you've heard me teach prophets very long, I love that verse as a paradigm, as a model. Because the door of Achor, Achor, that's where Achan and his family were stoned. The punishment of Achan and his family opened the door for further military victories. Now they could conquer I. They were defeated when they went up before they had dealt with the sin in their midst. Sometimes the punishment is a purging, is a purifying, so that then God can bless those who are left. That's what was going to happen. They were going through this punishment of the exile, and out of that a purified remnant would be brought back. That was the hope. That was God's vision. And they needed to have that same one. Now, there's some changes that have got to take place. They're not going to be able to come back and be those same people they were when they left. So what happens? Verse 18. When they come there, they will remove all these detestable things of all its abominations from it. You know, they're going to have to purge the land of the idols and the images. And I will give them one heart and then put a new spirit within them. I'll take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now, we understand that. Sin is a heart issue. <clears throat> This is, this is, I'm using this more as an illustration, though it's a point as well. Do you ever, as parents of, of say, smaller-ish children, teach them that they need to learn how to behave? Well, sometimes that translates into when you're in this place around this kind of people, don't say this, don't do that. Here's how you behave. And, and if you can get your kids to be quiet when they ought to be quiet, and to, you know, be where they ought to be, it's like, yes, I've been successful with my kids. Not really. Because you can behave and have a terrible heart, and you see these kids who were well-behaved, and then they turn completely away from everything. And what happened? Well, their heart was never in it. They just learned how to behave. They learned how to go through the emotions, and they learned how to not get in trouble. They behave. But that's not the root. If you don't change the heart, learning to behave doesn't change you. 
And so as parents, we're shaping hearts. We're seeking to, to mold the heart. God understood it's not just a matter of getting rid of the detestable things and abominations. You can, you can, you know, burn every idol and image there is if you don't get the idols out of the heart. You don't change the people. So God was dealing with the heart. Now, I remember, and you know, we're about, uh, we're about, uh, three fourths people who don't remember this. <laughs> Uh, man, it's amazing to me how t- quickly time flies. But I remember when Christian Barnard performed the first heart transplant. I see a couple of nods from older people. Uh, when he performed that first heart transplant, he was a South African doctor. I don't remember. It may have been in South Africa. I think he did most of them in the U.S. though. But uh, that was big news. And I'll tell you, every heart transplant for a while was big news. I mean, they... It took a while before any of them survived for very long. But you kind of followed every one of them with, you know, great expectation. And, and finally they've gotten to where they can do the heart transplants. It's amazing. Well, God was going to give them a heart transplant. Now, there, we, we must not imagine that we can just will ourselves to be better. We need to turn to the Lord and, and, and allow Him to transform us. And we must not think that all we need to do is kind of patch up the old heart. We really need a whole renewal. So he says, I'm going to, I'm going to put a new spirit in them. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. You know, I, I guess it'd be nice if all we need is a little open heart, you know, a little, a little surgery, a couple of, you know, uh, what are they call bypasses. I think the word in Portuguese is not in English. You get a couple of little bypasses or whatever, you know. <laughs> And, uh, but, but it's more than that. I mean, that's not good enough for us because that petrified, stony, hardened heart is just, it's not going to work. So God takes that heart out and gives them a heart of flesh. Flesh is sometimes used negatively in the Bible, but here it's used positively. The heart of flesh is like moldable, it's sensitive, it's, it's receptive. They, they need a, a, a heart uh, of, of flesh that, that's, that, that God can work with. And so that's what God's doing. And that, this is so they'll walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and they'll really be my people. We need that tender, yielding heart so that we obey the Lord and, and we become the kind of people that God wants. That's, this is what God's saying about the remnant in captivity. God's being a sanctuary to them and he's going to bring them back. And he's going to take the idols away and he's going to give them a whole heart transplant. And uh, uh, they're going to have one heart. It's not going to be this divided heart, this double heart. And have one heart of love for the Lord that's going to cause them to really live for him and serve him and do his will. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's really what we're looking for. That's what we're seeking. This, you could put together passages out of the prophets and you could teach a whole bunch of the gospel and never go to the New Testament. In fact, every once in a while, there are passages in the Old Testament I think are almost uh, better passages for showing us the realities of the New Testament than we have in the New Testament. I'm always impressed by the fact in Romans 15 when Paul wanted to 
mentioned something about Jesus, instead of quoting something he remembered Jesus did, he'd heard about Jesus doing, he quoted from the Old Testament, he quoted from the Psalms. And he said, well, that's okay, because we were in for our learning too. We need, we need the, the Old Testament passages. So this is really the gospel in, in the Old Testament. And, uh, and so this is the, this is the blessing. You know, now the ones who are rebellious, He's just going to bring their conduct down on their heads. This is not a promise for the whole nation. This is a promise for exiles and the exiles who are willing to allow God to perform a heart transplant and really turn themselves back to the Lord. I think ultimately passages like this ought to be understood as shadowily, is that a word, fulfilled in the return from captivity, but fully and ideally fulfilled in Christ. I think the ultimate fulfillment of this goes beyond Joshua and Zerubbabel and those guys that came back in Ezra. I think the fulfillment of this ultimately is what the Lord does for us as he brings us out of the bondage of sin and into a covenant with him. So I think this goes... It's like a lot of things in in Old Testament prophecy. I'm coming to see this more. I think I'm seeing it right. That many Old Testament prophecies have a general fulfillment in their time period. But if you press the language and you take it in the ideal sense, it actually refers to the Lord. Psalm 16. I think David is talking about himself. God wasn't going to leave him in the grave. I think he's talking about all righteous people. We're not going to be left in the grave. But our flesh does technically decay. And so when you really press the language, Peter and Paul both say this is really talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So I think this is fulfilled in a sense when they came back from captivity in Ezra. But 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 there's some things about this that are inadequate. If, if you're just thinking about that, I think the fuller ideal fulfillment is in Christ. And, and it's just a beautiful picture. This is what happens to us. If we're coming to the Lord, the Lord performs our heart transplant. And he takes out that hardened, cold, in, inflexible heart. And he puts in that moldable, sensitive, uh, yielding heart that submits to the Lord and that allows the Lord to live in him. I'm, I'm, I haven't gotten to 22 to 25, but I'll pause here for, for comments. Yes. Yeah, good point. Yeah, there's a lot of people baptized on the outside, but their heart's never been changed. They've never converted to the Lord, which is why we do not, should not have a view of some magical operation of baptism that automatically automatically transforms some rebel. We've got to turn to the Lord, trust in the Lord, repent. We've got to have a heart change to be able to be properly baptized into Christ and to rise to walk a new life. So we shouldn't think that baptism cuts it if we've not really turned to the Lord from the heart. Joe.
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think just in general, it is so easy for us, because it's so much easier, to think of Christianity as just doing the right checklist and checking off the box and not recognizing the, the, the absolute imperative necessity of having a heart of flesh, of having the Lord live in us, of really serving, the God, of serving God from the heart and not just checking off the boxes. I think all of us believe that, but we need to really examine our heart with that. Brent. Well, I think in the shadow application, the judgment and the punishment was a part of the process. They came to see their sinfulness, they loathed themselves, and they turned to the Lord. I think those who did, yes, in the shadow, that's true. I think in the reality in Christ, I mean, it is coming to be convicted and coming to repent. Repentance doesn't just mean determining to quit sinning. Repentance also means humbly turning to and submitting to the Lord. And so as we do that, God performs the operation, the heart transplant, and, and, and transforms us. And so, you know, one of the things that you see all through this, that I think is a challenge for all of us, is, is the paradox of God's initiative and man's responsibility. Just as there is the paradox of Jesus being God and man. And so we see in a lot of these passages that we're dependent on the Lord for that heart transplant. But clearly this is putting a responsibility upon us to be the kind of people that are willing to receive that. God's eager to give it if we're willing to receive it. So it is not just I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just will myself to be different. But it's also I've got to be willing for God to, to perform this in me. Steve. Yes, absolutely. Second Corinthians three eighteen is one of my favorite verses, and that's uh, that is tremendous, and that's exactly right. We are to begin to glow as Moses' face did by beholding the Lord and allowing that vision to transform our heart and character. Sit. I think it's important to understand. I mean, we use analogies to show why God would be angry at sin, and that's helpful. But God is not leaving the hub. <laughs> we have to just finally say, that's it, I've had it, I'm out of here. God is leaving as part of, as you said, as part of a process so that they will become the people he can come back to. And sending Ezekiel and the whole message and the vision of the end is all indicative of that. Great point, yes. The Lord's departure was so that he could come back and bless them. And that's exactly right. God's judgments even so often have an ultimate redemptive purpose, which is an incredible testimony to the grace of God. Peterson. Sure. Good point. Jake. 
It's a complex and beautiful passage. I'm not going to go into that right now. I did last year in Second Corinthians, so uh, you can get the, the notes on that. But uh, yeah, that, that is powerful, definitely. All right. Yes, John. Yeah, yeah. Like what our parents give us, we don't appreciate it until we lose it we don't realize what we've got yet i think losing it humbled them and brought them to the lord so so look at what he says then in in 22 and following we're still working on this uh movement of god's presence the cherubim there with the glory of god over them they leave the city and they go to the mountain east of the city and i assume the idea is that he moves on out now so this is the lord leaving his house and his city. He does that by his own choice. There's no foreign invader that captures him and takes him away. He does it for his own reason, in his own time, by his own means. The Lord made the choice that he wasn't going to stay there anymore. That was the turning point for Jerusalem in a political and military sense. This is not Babylon just was stronger than Judah and so they overran them. The historical events are so often a reflection of the spiritual reality. What happens in Jerusalem with Babylon conquering the city and tearing it down was because God left the city. It, you know, so, so we think that what's really going on is just what we see. But what we see is a reflection of things that are happening on the, in the spiritual world. And so God leaves. There is nothing to keep the Chaldeans from destroying Jerusalem. The people as a whole didn't realize God left. You know, Ezekiel is telling these exiles, you don't want to go back there. The Lord is not there anymore. The Lord is the sanctuary for you here in Babylon, especially if you'll repent. And you'll be brought back one day. But there's, there's no more presence of God in Jerusalem. There's nothing else to keep the Babylonians from conquering. Thoughts and comments on chapter 11. Right. It's an interesting contrast that God's glory doesn't change when he leaves the temple. And God doesn't need the people to be glorified himself. And yet he chooses for a long time to dwell with them even when they are on the glory. Whereas the people's glory fully relies on God. So God's choosing, he has been choosing to dwell among them, even though his glory has no no necessary tie to the people, and yet their glory is necessarily tied to the Lord, and yet they will not choose to dwell with him in state. So like they're making opposite choices, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Yes. What's Perhaps some of the Israelites will call that restoration and then returning back to 
being restored in their relationship with the Lord. And I think there's some times repentance, sometimes costs, you know, different things, places, relationships, whatever. But restoration isn't receiving those things back. It's really being restored. Yes, good point. That the re- primary restoration wasn't coming back to Jerusalem, but their restoration to fellowship with God. That's exactly right. That is the the main thing. Other thoughts? Logan. Can you speak to the significance of investment in knowledge in the city? Is there anything in that? Well, I mean, the gate of Jerusalem <coughs> faced the east. So I'm assuming as he, as he, assuming he, I mean, he says he left the East Gate. So I'm assuming he just goes on out, you know. And so as he goes out, you know, the next place he goes to the Mountain East, and you know, this kind of an interesting way of describing it, which seems kind of like a step by step moving out of the Lord. You know, obviously it doesn't take that for the Lord to move out, but this is a vision. If we see it like that, it's more vivid. And he could have just said the Lord left his, his temple. But that wouldn't be as, nearly as graphic as seeing this in this this way. Joe. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. Wouldn't be unusual to have a foreshadowing that. Maybe so. Awesome. Very good. Other thoughts? I think, I think the way we see the glory of the Lord slowly and slowly departing a lot of the time is what we see in ourselves and others. It's not that you wake up one day and you don't believe in God and that you're just completely far away. It's, it's a slow process of falling away from the Lord. It's so important to get a hold of it while we can. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Kind of the Lord leaves a step at a time or we leave him a step at a time. Yes, uh, It's amazing that there is the silver lining and that there's the hope after the punishment. Absolutely. Carla. Decides where he will be. We don't force his hand on that. That's a good point. 
great ideas. All right, we're going to transition here. I'm going to do something. So I need, I'm going to pick out a few of you guys.